So I, I love a movie with a really good twist. Anybody else like that? You know, um, the kind of twist that you totally don't see coming, but then if you watch the movie a second time, you're just like, oh, how did I miss it? It was so obvious, right? Like the, the classic movie that comes to mind is The Sixth Sense. Have y'all seen that, right? Where one of the characters, it turns out is, no, I'm not gonna tell you. So that would ruin it, even though it's been out for like 20 years, right? You've had enough time to see it. But if you watch that movie two times, right, you'll have a totally different experience the first and the second time because the ending changes the whole movie for you. All right. That's a helpful metaphor to think about the Bible. So we, we're part of the way through this series we're doing on 16 verses that help tell the, the big story of the Bible, 16 verses from throughout Scripture. We've been in Genesis. We're moving on to Exodus this morning. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Exodus 12, you can. So right now we're, we're, we're still in the Old Testament. In fact, we're still towards the beginning of the Old Testament in this series. But it's important that we're there still because the followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus, were part of a community of people that had been reading the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible, for many, many years. And they thought they had a pretty good grip on what that story was telling, what each of those passages was about. But then Jesus the Christ came, the Son of God. He dies on the cross, he is resurrected after three days, and suddenly all of those passages that they had been reading forever suddenly seemed to be saying something very different or something very very much deeper and more robust and richer, right? And so they're reading all these old passages like the passages we find in Exodus, where we're gonna be today is Exodus 12. And everything they see seems to be pointing to Jesus Christ everywhere they look. So when the author of Hebrews, for example, now Hebrews is a, is a New Testament book, but when he's writing, the New Testament is far from completed. So when he reads his Bible, he's reading the Old Testament. And when he picks it up and he opens to Exodus, the second book in the Bible, he's thinking a couple things because he's been reading Exodus for a long time. He's a good Jew. He knows it really well. He knows that Exodus is like a play with two acts. Acts one is, the act one is deliverance, right? Israel's deliverance from Egypt, Egyptian slavery. And act two is the giving of the law, including the 10 commandments. So he knows Exodus is a, is a play in two acts, deliverance, and law. And he knows that the hinge between those two acts is Exodus 12. And so when he reads Exodus 12, though, knowing all those things, he has this feeling because he has been captivated by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that somehow this play, Act 1, Deliverance, and Act 2, Law, are somehow both pointing to Jesus Christ. Right? So as people who have finished the movie, you know, as people who know the Jesus twist, you know, we're like, yeah, we get that. Well, well, we get how deliverance, the story of deliverance might be pointing to Jesus because that's what Jesus does, right? He comes and delivers us. But how, how could the story of law, the giving of law, be pointing to Jesus? Because, you know, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, Paul says. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, he says. Sometimes if we don't see a really obvious connection to the person of Jesus in parts of the Old Testament, we have a tendency to just kind of write those chunks off. Say, oh, that's not the gospel. Let's move along. Right? But God's doing something in Exodus that we need to pay attention to. I 
apparently both acts in this Exodus play, Act 1, Deliverance, Act 2, Law, do have something to do with the gospel. And we know this because God ties this whole story at the very beginning to the promises he has made to Abraham and others, that he is going to bless the whole world, that's the story of the gospel, through Abraham's descendants, Jesus ultimately being one of those. But Exodus begins about 400 years after Genesis left off. That's where we were last week. And over that time, things have not improved. Martin Luther King Jr. used to talk about the myth of time, which is this foolish idea that given enough time, everything gets better. Right? Well, just ask Israel about that. You know, 400 years go by and they're Egyptian slaves. Their life is getting worse and worse. Pharaoh's making the burden worse and worse. But this is what we read in Exodus 2. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, the covenant to bless the whole world with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And then God delivers them in Exodus in the first act. In act two, he gives them the law. So that's a clue. Don't miss it. Don't miss this clue here, that the deliverance from Egypt and the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments and what follows, are both apparently part of God's plan to bless the whole world through the descendants of Abraham and ultimately Jesus. You following? Okay. Now, we tend to resist the idea as believers that the law can have anything to do with the blessing of Jesus. Because we tend to resist the idea that restrictions in any form can be a blessing. The greatest value, the greatest virtue in our time is freedom. The freedom to do what you want to do, be who you want to be. Some of y'all have seen that Diet Coke commercial where this girl goes to buy a Diet Coke and she's just talking about the freedom she has to buy a Diet Coke. And she's like, you know, like everybody should just do you. You know, if, if you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up, she says. She says, if you want to run a marathon, well, that sounds hard, but you do you whatever you is, she says. And then she drinks Diet Coke. And I just want to say, honey, nobody who's truly free picks Diet Coke, right? Like you only pick Diet Coke if you've got some restrictions in your life. Can I get an amen? Is there anybody out there, right? Like, you know, that's such a myth, right? Um, I was watching recently a preacher who I like, somebody shared this video clip with me who was talking about this idea of freedom. And he says, the truth is that, that none of us are really free. You know, that all of us live under restrictions, right? It's just, which restrictions do we choose to live under? And he said, uh, consider the fish, for example. You know, the fish swimming around in the water and the fish thinks it is as free as it can be, right? But the reality is the fish is only free as long as he's in the water. You know, if the fish feels free to jump out of the water, he's gonna find out really quickly that was a bad call. That was a bad idea. So we all live under restrictions. Freedom is just about finding the right restrictions to live under. And as Christians, we say the right restrictions to live under are those that God has designed for us, right? True freedom is is following the restrictions that align with who God has made us to be so that we can glorify God, right? My freedom in Christ is not about my self-fulfillment. It's about the glory of God. Uh, So that's a really profound truth. That's a truth that applies to sexual ethics. It applies to how we um, act in our marriages, how we treat our children. It applies to what we 
eat or drink. It applies to what we post on social media, right? It applies to what we watch on Netflix after the kids go to sleep, right? My freedom in Christ is not about my self-fulfillment. It's about righteousness. It's about glorifying God. And that's what the law, Old Testament law, the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, the law that follows Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's what it's about. It's God's attempt to preserve his people in righteousness so that they might bless the world in righteousness as he intends for them to do. And what's amazing about the law is that the deliverance of God, and I did say that, what's amazing about the law, I'm a Christian preacher, what's amazing about the law? But what is amazing about the law is that the deliverance in Act 1 of Exodus shapes the character of the law in Acts 2, Act 2 of Exodus. You can tell I'm a New Testament guy because I keep saying Acts, sorry. That the personality of the law is shaped by the deliverance of God. Let me make sense of that. So open up to Exodus 12 if you've got it. Let me set the stage for what's going on in Exodus 12. Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for a really long time. And so God, hearing their groaning, remembering the promise he made to Abraham, he sends these 10 plagues. Remember the plagues? Remember those from BBS? And Exodus 12 is just before the 10th and final plague, which is by far the worst. When God sends his spirit, the destroyer, out among the Egyptians, it goes into the home of all the Egyptians and kills the firstborn sons. This is the plague that tips the scales. This is what ultimately motivates Pharaoh to release the uh, Israelites. It's a moment of deliverance, but it's also a plague of judgment. Look at Exodus 12, verse 12. God says that he is going to send this destroyer out among both the Israelites and the Egyptians to what? Bring judgment. That's what he's doing. And here's the truth. The Egyptians deserve judgment. But the Israelites do too. You know, they've, they've set up idols. They've doubted God. The whole story of Exodus and Moses is the Israelites kind of dragging their feet, not sure if they can trust Moses and trust God to actually pull this thing off, right? And, and I think we deserve judgment too, right? I mean, isn't that the whole story? What it's all pointing to is it's not just the Egyptians who deserve judgment. It's not just the Israelites who deserve judgment. It's us, Right? It's all of us, we are all sinners. But what happens is that God makes a way for his children. He, he sets them up in a certain way so that they might be delivered. Let's see how he does it. Look at Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. And none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of your door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Pay attention here. How does God deliver Israel? God delivers Israel by allowing them to substitute a lamb for themselves. The lamb dies so they don't have to. That's substitution, that's what that is. So uh, at this point in the sermon, I, I was kind of stuck. 
And so I, I do it, what preachers do when they're stuck. It's, it's really deep and profound. I, I got on Google and um, I Googled the word substitute. And it turns out that's a hilarious word to Google, the word substitute. So these are some of the stories on legitimate news sites that came up when I Googled substitute. So this first one, Rice Krispies are no substitute for swine flu vaccine. Like, really? Surprise? You know, I can just imagine this dad like, son, we've got to go get your swine flu vaccine. He's like, dad, I hate shots. He's like, no worries, son. Snap, crackle, pop. You know, need some more Rice Krispies. No big deal. Uh, or this next story, this one's really good. Chinese zoo substitutes dog for lion. I, I had to read this story. So the, the short version of the story is this zoo has to take their lion out of captivity and to, for breeding purposes. And so, but one of the employees has this big mastiff dog. So they just put it in the pen and hope nobody would notice. Okay. So that's why we're sending missionaries to China right there. And uh, they, they interviewed one of the Chinese moms who did notice and she said she felt cheated. Yeah, you felt cheated. And then, and then this one grabbed my attention. The word substitute isn't in the title, but it's a, it shows up a bunch in the story. So it was pretty high on my search list and it's about Jesus. So I had to read it. New head for Jesus statue that prompted double takes is gone. So of course I've got to read this. Long story short, this church has a statue outside of the Virgin Mary holding baby Jesus. And somebody came along and knocked the head of baby Jesus off and stole it. And so uh, this local artist volunteers to make a new head for baby Jesus. And so the church is always looking to save a buck. This guy's willing to do it for free. So they're like, sure, come and do it. But, but this is the head that he puts on baby Jesus. You see that right there? And so it turns out some people didn't like that head, which is just like church people, right? You know, they didn't like that head. So this priest has to order Jesus beheaded again. And the news reporter interviews him and he says, I wasn't trained for this in seminary, right? Yeah, yeah, of course you weren't trained for that. All right, surprisingly, right? Some people didn't like that. All these stories point to the fact. We can take that down. It's gonna be hard to focus here. All right, all these stories point to the fact that substitutes are problematic. They've always been problematic ever since this first substitute here in Exodus 12. Because, all right, even though the substitution of the lamb works on this night that the destroyer goes throughout Egypt, it only works temporarily. The Israelites still deserve judgment like you and I do. So to equip them, the Israelites, to fulfill their purpose of blessing the whole world, God has to work into the law repeated substitutions. Okay, right after this in Exodus 20, we read this, God says, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, your sheep, your goats, and your cattle. And this imagery right here of substitutionary sacrifices then worked into the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that follows. So Exodus, is, Exodus hinges on one idea as the story moves from act one deliverance to act two law. The deliverance will only come by a substitute. Okay, so you can imagine a good law-abiding Israelite takes his or her sacrifice, they throw it on the altar each year. And as they look at that sacrifice, they remember, this is what the law is designed to help them do. They remember, oh, that should be me. Oh, that's what I deserve. But thanks be to God, he's allowed this this sacrifice to substitute for me. Praise God, he's made a way for me. When do you say that to yourself? You probably haven't sacrificed any goats, any lambs lately. 
I'd be willing to sacrifice my neighbor's cat. He keeps, keeps using my son's sandbox as his litter box. There's nothing worse than just playing with your digger and finding petrified cat poo in the sandbox. I'd be willing to sacrifice him if God tells me to, but you know, like most of us have not, most of us don't say that a lot because we, we, it's hard for us to imagine maybe a visual representation. We don't have the kind of the, the liturgy, the symbolic acts that when we see those things in front of us, we remember, oh, that should be me. That's what I deserve. Uh, but look what, look what God says in Exodus 12, where Moses says, repeating God's instructions, you know, we're, we're freed from this obligation of sacrifice that's in the Jewish law, but it's possible we're missing something really great because the instruction here is to, about the sacrifice, right? That they're going to repeat again and again, God's deliverance, which is achieved because of this substitutionary sacrifice. Moses says this, this is a day you are to commemorate, remember, for the generations to come. He wants them to remember they deserve death, but God has made a way for them. I mean, it's the original Memorial Day. You deserve this, but God has made a way. That's what the law is designed to do. So we're not under the burden of the Jewish law anymore. Like, that's a big chunk of the New Testament. Okay, but are there times when you think that? That's what I deserve. I mean, I wonder if church can function as that kind of reminder for people. There's a lot of reasons to come to church. Most of them are good reasons. You got good friends here, brothers and sisters in Christ, good fellowship, good chances to study the Bible and worship. And then there's, there's reasons that aren't as good, like free childcare and the cookies by the coffee pot and stuff. But like, why do you come? You know, does church remind you of who you are before God? What you deserve in the presence of a holy God as a sinful person? And when you come in and you see this cross hanging behind me, are you ever undone as you think about what happened on that cross for you? And when you pass the plate, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, you take those things on your lips. Does it ever like shake you to your core, right? Make it hard to pass the plate along. I mean, do you remember who you are when you come into this place before God? I think there's this temptation to think the church is supposed to manufacture that memory for me. It's supposed, to, it's supposed to do it for me. But the thing is, even the law that was designed specifically to help the Israelites remember failed to do it. You know, if the Pharisees that Jesus had so much trouble with, right? Okay, if they actually remembered that the inside of their cup, their heart was not clean, right? That they were sinners. Jesus would not have had nearly as much trouble with them but they practiced their law, right? They checked all the boxes. You know, they were there every Sunday or Saturday in their case, right? You know, they came up to the preacher afterwards and said, good sermon, good songs today, Brescian. They turned on Caleb as they drove to Elmez Cal, right? I mean, they were, they were the best of the best. They gave Jesus all kinds of trouble. You know, if your heart is not ready, then church can't remake you remember who you are any more than the law could. You know, memory is a matter of the heart and a heart that can't remember will never know why you need Jesus. Nevertheless, make you want Jesus, right? Some of us are just struck by our inability to desire Christ. Okay, desire begins with need. 
If you're not aware that you need that substitution on your behalf, you're never going to desire him. You'll never desire him. But for those Israelites who did come each year, right, and they're given their sacrifice, there had to come this really unnerving moment. Whereas they're watching that lamb consumed by the fire, they thought this to themselves, and this is how one author put it. The consequence of sin is death. But in the Garden of Eden, right, God promised to overcome the effects of our sin and finally defeat the serpent, the enemy. However, these sacrifices have to be repeated year after year, so they can't actually be defeating sin. In fact, when I offer a sacrifice, I'm admitting that I deserve death or else I wouldn't be here doing this. So unless something or someone greater comes along, all I'm doing is delaying the inevitable, I need a greater sacrifice. And that's how Exodus points to Jesus. That's how the law points to Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, the author of Hebrews knew this. He knew that substitutes are problematic. So he writes this in Hebrews 10. He said this, the author of Hebrews, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it, the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, he's talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. He's talking about you me. See, apparently this author in Hebrews had read Exodus, but Jesus changed the way he read it. One of my buddies at the prison wrote a letter recently to his classmates urging them to be baptized. And turns out four of those guys are going to be baptized as soon as the prison lets us, which is a whole thing. We can talk about that sometime. But four of those guys are going to be baptized because of largely what he wrote. And he, he kept saying in the letter, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. That was the word he kept using, the ultimate sacrifice. And I think that's a good word, the ultimate sacrifice. There's a lot of words you could use for Jesus. You could call him the perfect sacrifice, the, the timeless, unchanging, spotless, the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, name above all names, all those things work. But I think ultimate sacrifice fits pretty well. Because it's, it's not only the undeserving Right, okay, it's, it's not only the unsaved, it's not only the Egyptians, right, who are des deserve judgment, right? It's you and me. In this story, it's the children of God who deserve judgment as well. But God makes a way for them, like he makes a way for us. I mean, how, how when you enter this place, right, and when you see this cross behind me, you know, how can you not praise the God who would give himself for you? How can, how can your, your life not be overcome with praise outside of this one hour for the God who would substitute his son for you? you know, whose, whose son would take your sins 
upon himself the, the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, how can you not praise that God that there is a sacrifice and he is ultimate? You know? Exodus 12 says that when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and he'll pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or strike you down. Thanks be to God. He has made a way and he still makes a way. If you don't know that way, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, I invite you to do that today. I'd love to take you into these waters behind me and baptize you this morning. If not, maybe you just need prayer. I'd love to pray with you down here or we'll have elders in the back who will pray. I invite you to stand as we uh, continue in song. What can I show away my sin? Nothing but the blood.